It's Lions, Towers, and Shields from the Incomparable Network. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host, and this is episode 30. Before we get started, I want to say I'm taking a temporary break from the movie news. I started that because I really like to know about when classic films are coming to Blu-ray or streaming or when interesting things are happening at TCM and in the world of film festivals. But uh, I'm finding that it's just a little bit of, of work, and I'm not getting a great deal of feedback about whether that information is as useful to some of you as it is to me. So here's what I'd ask you to do. If you would be so kind as to tweet me over at Lion Tower Shield one way or another and tell me whether you like or don't like the movie news that I have been doing at the beginning of every other Lions, Towers, and Shields episode. Okay? Okay. Now let's talk about a movie, shall we? Today we're talking about Treasure of the Sierra Madre from 1948. It is a John Huston film starring Humphrey Bogart, Tim Holt, and Walter Huston. You might recognize that last name because Walter Huston is in fact the father of John Huston, the writer and director of this film. And to talk with me about Treasure of the Sierra Madre, it is Dr. Drang. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Shelley. How are you? I'm well. I won't ask how you are, because I know that before we got started, you were having a few computer issues, but that's all behind us now, and we're ready to pan for gold. Absolutely. I'm going to do a dance here. Yes. (laughs) Now playing the Walter Houston part is Dr. Drag. (laughs) So this was uh, made right in the... uh, heat of Warner Brothers' success. Humphrey Bogart is an enormous star at this point, and yet he's playing very much against type that he had come to be known for. So so Bogart in the 40s is the hero of the movie. He might be a gangster, he might be a guy who runs a boat, he might be a guy who runs a club in Casablanca, but he is most definitely the hero not so much in this movie. Uh, John Huston, the director, had directed The Maltese Falcon and had also uh, written High Sierra, in which Bogart appeared, so they had worked together before. Uh, and the, the casting of Walter Houston is interesting. Houston, who was close to 60 at this point, still thought of himself as a leading man. And I'll talk a little bit more about Walter Houston from my nerdy knowledge of his early 30s movies in a bit. Uh, but Houston kind of didn't want the part, but he he does, in fact, make the most of it. But before I continue monologuing about trivia, let me, let me ask you, what's your history with this film? Have you seen it a lot before or are you coming to it relatively new? I have seen it probably four or five times uh, in the past. It's been several years uh, since I watched it. But so I did pick up some things that I had not picked up before. But uh, and I promise you, I will not I will not offensively do the badges speech in, in an accent. Um, we all know what it is. We can just sort of, I think when we get to that part, we can just, we can just both say badges and everybody will know what we're talking about and we, we well, can move on. It helps that, and we'll get to it, but it helps that as typically quoted, it's not the phrase that's in the movie. Well, so we can, right. we can get to that. So, yes. Uh, so there are several iconic bits in the movie. That's one of them. Walter Houston doing a jig is another and uh, <laughs> but so so what was your what was your what's your take on the movie? Is it has it been one of your favorites? Is it sort of I mean, are you a fan of the actors? And what's what's your your thoughts about this generally? I am. a fan. I mean, other than Bruce Bennett. Yes, I am a fan of the actors. I don't I think everybody does a fine job except him in this in this movie. And um, no, I really I, I always, you know, I I there was a period in, in my life when I was younger, when I, you know, I watched all, the, I watched a lot of Bogart movies and I always thought he was good, even maybe when he wasn't all that good. Um, but this one is, and, and, and as I've watched it more and more, I care maybe a little bit less about him. And I, and this time I spent a lot of time looking at Tim Holt and, and paying attention to him, which, and I think he does a good job. He doesn't have, uh, he, he doesn't have the, the sort of scenery chewing, chewing up, parts uh, that, that others do, but he does really a good job as sort of the center of the movie and, and holding things in and kind of being like us in the movie. Um, so, someone who's, you know, certainly not a good guy in an un- unadulterated way, but a person who has had life deal him some bad cards and he has, you know, made some bad choices occasionally, but generally, at least relatively speaking, not so bad in this movie. Of course, when you're up against Fred Dobbs, (laughs) everybody looks good. 
I was always drawn to the Tim Holt character when I saw this movie before, I, not only because he's just obviously more sympathetic and he's not becoming a paranoid, crazy murderer like uh, Bogart as Fred C. Dobbs, but there's just this sort of quiet presence about him. And I didn't ever think much about Tim Holt, who who that guy was, what his acting background was until probably the two or three times ago that I saw this movie and I looked him up and the reason I hadn't seen Tim Holt very much and somebody as somebody who watches a lot of movies from this era is that he's known as a Western star. So he did a lot of, you know, B B Westerns and, you know, Republic Pictures kind of, and was a pretty big star in that environment. In fact, his father was also a big Western star in the silent era. So if, if you were a fan of you know, if you were hanging out with uh, in, in the Saturday matinees with uh, Gene Autry and uh, Roy Rogers and those kind of people, you probably knew who Tim Holt was. He was also in The Magnificent Ambersons in another really interesting performance. And a lot of people sort of forget that, including me. I'd forgotten that until I read that today. But yeah, so it was interesting that they chose to cast him. And there's all sorts of stuff about who they wanted to cast previously. One iteration when they wanted to... When Houston has been had been wanting to make this movie since before he was even a film director because it's based on a novel that was written in the 20s. He wanted to make it as of something like 1935. And by the time he got to the point as a director where he could potentially make it, they were talking about George Raft, Edward G. Robinson, and uh, John Garfield as the cast, which seems ridiculous, to be honest. <laughs> Take all your gangsters and put them in the Mexican desert and put them on burrows. And that just seems like that would not have worked for him. Well, Edward G. Robinson could do it. Yes, he could. He could do it. You know, I don't think George Raft could do it. George Raft couldn't do much of anything, in my opinion. No, but. no. Well, flip a coin. <laughs> right. He was really good at flipping a coin. <laughs> you know, I mean, give the man credit. Right. But yeah, I mean, I, I think the the and Walter Houston, as I said, didn't want to do it because he sort of didn't see himself in that role. And if you've if you've seen other Walter Houston performances. I, I think this is probably the first one of him that I ever saw. And so when I saw the other performances, I was taken aback. And I think most people have the reverse experience because they'll see, you know, they know him from this movie or from a few movies he made after. There's one called The Furies uh, that he made where he's he's playing a, sort of a richer, smarter version of this character. But he's still a little, you know, he's kind of a firebrand guy. And you sort of see him and maybe it's because he doesn't have any teeth and he's dancing around all the time. You sort of see him as a little bitty dude. And he's not. Like Walter Houston is is you know, six feet tall. And when he's standing up straight and he, he played in the, he wasn't really a straight up leading man. He played in the early, early and mid thirties, middle-aged guys who were either running banks or having midlife crises. He was in Dodsworth, which is a pretty good movie. He was in Rain with Joan Crawford, which is a really interesting movie to watch if you want to get a little sense of, well, he played Lincoln in 1930. So he's like a middle-aged sort of upright, dignified guy, but but always a very naturalistic actor. And this performance, although you could see that it would have the opportunity to just chew all the scenery in the world, he manages to do it in such a way that it, it really doesn't feel like that. So you can see leading man looks in the guy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, especially his eyes uh, when you when you see this. And there are, you know, there are plenty of close ups of him. And, he you know, he's doing his reasoned old guy. Um, and he, by the way, he happens to be the age that I am right now when he made this movie. So, you know, obviously very young. Oh, yes, of course. It's still still in his prime. But you take you could see that if you took away the beard, yeah, he could still be. And, and if he were, uh, you know, working today, he could be in the Harrison Ford kind of category sure. of a guy, a better actor than Harrison Ford, of course. But, uh, you know, he could be that guy who's playing younger than he is. But here he's playing, well, maybe probably as old as he was. Yeah. And given that he's the sort of down his luck character that he is, yeah, you can buy that at the age that he was, he would be in the shape that he is. Although they make a point of him being, you know, much more physically able to endure the mountain climbing than than Curtin and then uh, Tim Holden and Humphrey Bogart, because probably Houston has taken his character has taken a little better care of himself or, you know, hasn't, you know, awakened in dive uh, bars with a hangover quite as many times. I don't know. Well, he's been, you know, he's been doing this all the time. Right. Um making and, and losing fortunes, whereas Dobbs, at least, you know, has been moving from one grift to another. That, that's right. the backstory we all we all have of him. What I think, um, you know, you mentioned, the, the, you know, that he's like six feet tall or something like that. He does. He makes himself look smaller 
And obviously, uh, John Houston has to shoot him to look smaller because there's nobody smaller than Humphrey Bogart. Right. And so, so, you know, and, and Bogart has to look imposing. And, and you know, every, every director who directed Bogart had to work this problem out. And Houston was one of the early ones to do it. So obviously he knew how to. Tim Holt, I don't know how big Tim Holt was, but I imagine him being like 6'2 or something like that. I do too, and I don't know that offhand. Now, Bruce Bennett, now he, he looks tall. And the way they shoot him, you can tell he's a tall guy. And he's He was an than- athlete. And he, well, he was in Tarzan serials and that sort of thing. So he was, and he's, he's a, you know, really wooden act, actor. He's another one who sort of played middle-aged husbands, not in good relationships in the late forties. And he, he would, if you had a love triangle in a movie where Ann Sheridan was interested in somebody, Bruce Bennett was always the husband that was being left behind. It was being cheated on. <laughs> right, exactly. Yes, that's right. Yes. And, and rightly so. Because yeah, rightly so, what, indeed. What a stiff. Oh, my God. Uh, in fact, he ultimately, he gets cheated on in, in, it's true. in, in this movie, too. <laughs> poor George. Poor, I almost said George Raft because that was going to be my joke. I was like, well, you know, at least he's now George Raft. The, the introduction of the, the Bogart character is really interesting to me too because you know it's one thing for him to be a down and out and be you know later on we'll see him with a growth of beard and just looking as as somebody put it in a slack conversation we were having sweaty humphrey bogart but early in the movie not only is he just down and out he's literally begging which is not something you see and and it's it's fascinating to watch the way he you know he's got a pattern and he says what is it he says he says um can you stake a fellow american to a meal can you and he just repeats it and he does what people who beg probably often do, which is you just say the lines, you don't look up, you, you know, you, you do what you have to do and you hope that every once in a while you score. Right. And he does score. He scores with John Houston yes. three times. Right. And John Houston a- resplendent doing his, you know, just in, in, a, in a ice cream white suit looking like Tom Wolfe. I know. Uh, he, you know <laughs> that's a great cameo. Great. Really yes. great cameo. He also runs across a little boy selling lottery tickets who happens to be Robert Blake, former little rascal and later Beretta and Beretta. later, uh, you know, killer guy. Uh, but at this point. Well, so, you know, when, when I first saw that, probably when I first saw this movie, I, I think you so I would have been like in junior high or so. Anyway, it would have been a time when Beretta was on mm-hmm. and when Robert Blake would have been on the Johnny Carson show at night all the time and talking about the old days, you know, when he was child actor and things like that, you know, before the, before the murder problem. And so that was another thing that that I would always look for when I watched the movie because, oh, you know, Beretta was cool. He had the parrot and everything. So uh, that he shows up early, he shows up uh, and then he shows up, you know, as, as sort of the uh, deus ex machina later on when they, when they need some money. And he's actually pretty good. (laughs) He is good. He's great. He's one of, he is maybe the only, certainly one of the few actors playing a Mexican character who isn't actually Mexican. That was unusual. It was very unusual. At at the time. And I was looking through the actors and I was wondering, well, you know, maybe some of them are are actually from South America or some other place. No, it seems like they were all, they were all the main ones uh, that you remember really were from Mexico. Except, of course, Robert Blake. Except, right. And they have those characters speak more Spanish than you otherwise would expect. I mean, occasionally in a movie like this, you will hear Spanish and then immediately will be translated. And you you can tell what's going on because it's well shot and you can tell by the expressions. And, you know, most people know a couple of words of Spanish. But Houston doesn't hold your hand. And, you know, it's not in that era, they wouldn't have done subtitles. They would have found some other way to do it. But I appreciate that there are extended periods when we talk both with the bandits and with the Indians where... They're speaking Spanish, and 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 Houston, you know, for his entire life was a fan of Mexico, and had spent a lot of time there. Some of the movie, this movie is shot. The scenes in town in Tampico and in Durango were actually shot in Mexico, which made Jack Warner mad because John Houston went way over budget. But it does show in the care he takes and the choices he made about what actors to to hire to play the Mexican parts. I am surprised every time I see this movie. I am surprised at how extended. The Spanish-speaking parts are. Yeah, I, and I really like it. I think probably when I first saw it, I might have been irritated by it because I say, "Is I not a Spanish speaker?" 
But now I just this movie really takes its time in general. It doesn't hurry. And it's two hours and five minutes, which is long for a movie of this era. And I can see that there might have been some impatience at the studio. But if you think about those scenes where conversations are happening, where Spanish is being spoken, whether whether uh, Walter Houston is translating it or not. And then you think about the scenes where they're traveling from place to place. Houston really gets to take his time on those scenes. And it, it creates a, a great atmosphere. One, one of my issues with modern movies is how quickly most of them feel the need to cut, whether, whether it's action or not. I mean, it's one thing to say, well, okay, we want an action sequence and we want it really fast. But even when you're spilling out narrative, it seems like the modern standard is to just cut extremely quickly. And I appreciate that this one didn't do that. Yeah. I am, you know, you mentioned Jack Warner. I, I, more than the than the amount of money he spent for the uh, shooting on location, I'm surprised that he didn't put his foot down about all the Spanish speaking in there. Uh, wh- whoever was guarding Houston, of course, Houston had j- come back from the war. He had been very successful before the war. I did he is this his first movie back from? I, I don't. Th- I think he might have one or two before then. Okay. But, but yeah, he he had a major career in the. There's a there's a really good book. Uh, and I may have talked about it in the show before called Five Came Back about directors uh, written by Mark Harris, who yeah. uh, about directors who all went to war and did uh, quite a lot of filmmaking for the government or or on behalf of the government one way or another. It's William Wyler and George Stevens and Frank Capra and John Huston and uh, Frank, uh, who am I forgetting? The fifth guy. Anyway, John John Houston is one of them. John Ford. John Ford. Yes, I I, I didn't I didn't read the book. I did. I saw the. Is it Netflix? That's uh, right. They uh, did make a movie. They did. They made a, a documentary series. Yeah, and I I, the, I wanted which it was excellent. I, I I I liked the book a good deal better, which I guess is sort of a cliche to say. I'd read the book first. I was completely prepared to love the documentary, and I enjoyed it. But I guess having read the book, any case, it, yeah. <laughs> one of the things that I. That I learned from that, and I, you know, probably should have known this anyway. Houston is so full of shit. Oh yes, uh, <laughs> my God. And and there are things I, you know, if you if you read, uh, say, the Wikipedia article about Treasure of the Sierra Madre, there are little bits of color in there, and the people who edited the Wikipedia page are the most credulous human beings on earth because they take what John Houston says at face value and they just kind of report it because presumably, you know. It, in the Wikipedia way, if it's written somewhere else, you can put it on Wikipedia. Right. There's, there's there's a reference for it, but any reasonable person would know, no, that's just a bullshit story. That's, I'm sorry, we are, I'm forcing you to <laughs> bleep, but th- that's, you know, he's, he is so full of crap. And one of the things you probably came out more in the book of, of Five Came Back, but certainly in the documentary, you realize Oh yeah, he made he made these documentaries. Um, I forget which. Uh, it was a battle in Italy. I believe it was and it's either Anzio or it, uh, no, it's not Anzio. It's I know which one you're talking about. Though. There's there's a town where there had been a battle. Yes, he, he completely recreated it. He recreated it. He shows up after the fact and he recreates yes. this battle. Yes, and so two things. You know, yes, he recreates it entirely and, and sort of tries to pass it off as if it's the real thing. And also, he tells stories about how he was in the war and was you know was taking fire when when he's shooting this. And he, you know, no, no. Yeah, he wrote a pretty. I think the Wikipedia article is referencing a autobiography he wrote late in his life, which is very uh, hyperbolic and very self congratulatory. Which is it's total Houston. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's a lot to take with a grain of salt. He is great. There's no question about it. I mean, he he directed fantastic movies, and he uh, he's his role in Chinatown. Is oh, yeah. is wonderful. He's a very talented person, but don't believe anything he says. San Pietro was the battle, and according to IMDb, that was the movie that he made immediately before this, and it's dated 1945. So I guess this is, at least as a director, his first movie back. And I knew. I think he may have gone to Broadway or something. Possible. Oh, he was also still writing, and so it's it's possible that he wrote some things as well, but. Yeah, we're three years past the war. It was released in early 1949. He wins the Oscar for Best Director and for Best Screenwriter, and Walter wins Best Supporting Actor, well-deserved. And uh, Bogart does not win, which is 
I, I think it's really the best performance of his career. Bogart will go on to win for The African Queen, which I, I enjoy that movie, and he's good in it, but this is really the performance it's, of his Yeah, career. It's, it's not this. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, not to, to belabor plot points and, and the like, but we, we start out... Uh, the, the thing that fascinated me about the early part of this movie where we're sort of meeting our characters and, uh, you know, Bogey and, and Tim Holt are per- partners early on and then they meet up with uh, Howard, Walter Houston's character, and they're going to go and they're going to dig for gold because he, they, they've convinced Walter Houston, who's talked to them about gold, that, that he can, you know, be on their team. And and Houston, Walter Houston basically sums up the entire movie before yes. they even get going. Basically says... Uh, gold is it's has no value. I love it. He has no intrinsic value. It's, he doesn't say it in these words exactly, but he, he reminds us that gold is only valuable because we think it is. And he says, and you're we're gonna go and th- do this, and people become crazy. They do things they never expect to do. Uh, murder can will occur. I mean, he he says this a lot more eloquently and more plain spokenly than I just have. But it's like, that's the whole movie. And of course, you know, Fred C. Dobbs is like, that's not going to happen to me. I'll just quit when I'm tired, you know? <laughs> so what I wrote down for this is, is the quote is, I know one of the, one of the lines of, of Houston is, I know what gold does to men's souls, right. which is great. And then my next note is he basically explains the entire plot. Explains the whole movie right there. <laughs> yes. But still, he's he's willing to go along. And the, the sort of confidence in his own ability to sort of, I think for 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 uh, Howard, this is another adventure. Like they they all meet in this flop house in Tampico, and what and uh, he's just as down and out as Dobbs and Curtin are, but he's got a better handle. He's an older person. He's got a better handle on his own life, and you you sort of get the feeling that to the extent he can, he'll get himself out of these circumstances, and he doesn't really need Dobbs and Curtin the way they need him. And I think that's what makes it possible to watch it and for it not to be I was thinking about this. If 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 Howard's character were as dour as I don't guess you can call Curtin dour, but he's he's very quiet and he's he's struggling. Not as much as Fred C. Dobbs is, but the enthusiasm that Howard has, not just when he's tap dancing or when he's doing a jig on the gold field, uh, but just in general, makes it possible to watch a movie that has so few characters in it, and I guess is what I was getting to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's his wisdom that drives the plot. I mean, they would not be able to do any of this if it weren't right. for him, but it's also his wisdom that keeps us reminded of what's going on and why and, and, and is foreshadowing. There's not, you know, you mentioned that this is like a two-hour movie. As far as plot points are concerned, it is very conservative. Very little happens that you don't get to see the consequence of later on. Very few things are done just for the fun of it uh, or, or just because they look good or it's interesting or a particular actor wanted to do some some bit of business. You know, Robert Blake comes in, he comes back later. Uh, you know, every everything that's said here by by Walter Houston is, you know, comes back and comes true later. When Dobbs and Curtin meet up uh uh, what is it? Is it after? Is it after beating the heck out of um, out of Barton McLean? Yeah. They meet up. They meet up at the fountain in town, and to wash themselves off. Yeah, of course. That's why they have to wash themselves off after the fight, and decide that they're going to find the old man. And you know, again, well, Bogart says, "Oh yeah, we're going to have to carry that guy around." And Tim Holt says, "Oh no, you know, sometimes these some of these old guys are really very spry and can go." Yeah, that's right. Of course, of course. The, the movie does make a lot of signposts of you know what's coming up and in a in a less capable director's hands that would be really irritating and i guess if you've seen it you you recognize them as signposts but i think if you were new to it you you'd sort of let that wash over you and you still don't know exactly how it's going to come out you you can tell before they go up the mountain that it's not going to end well that's not a surprise and that doesn't even have to do with the signposts that's just you know uh, uh, fred c dobbs is unstable and uh howard his he's he doesn't seem to have an agenda that we don't know about, which is actually kind of amazing. I guess that would be the one surprise is that I I kind of wondered, you know, is the Howard he never character- turns. Yeah, right. He doesn't turn. And and but, you know, that when they go up that mountain, it's not they're not going to come down millionaires. It's, it's not possible for that to happen. Yeah, what's the point of that movie? 
Although actually what's funny what's funny about that is it reminds me a little bit of a of a movie called Boomtown uh from MGM which with uh, Spencer Tracy and Clark Gable and the premise of that movie is you have a couple of down on your luck down on their luck guys who drill for oil. But what happens to them is they keep making and losing and making fortunes again. It it has too many beats in it. It's like three or four times each of them you know, makes and loses all the money that they have, which is sort of the point of that movie. And that movie ends up better because nobody's, it's it's sort of a comedy and sort of a star vehicle. So it's not intended to talk about capitalism or the, how gold destroys men's souls. But it is the same in the sense that you have people who absolutely have nothing and then they get something but they get to keep some of the something for a while and then they lose it because they do something stupid and then they get it back again. <laughs> that movie's too long. I guess was my yeah. point. Well, it's, not, it's nice to have just the one arc in the movie. But that's what's, what's interesting about because you know that the, the journey of the movie is pretty linear. I mean, they go from the town. Once they get together, they get, in the, they get on the train so they can go to where they're going to begin their journey up the mountain. Then they encounter the bandits for the first time on the train. Then they uh, dispatch them. Then they go up the mountain. They finally find the gold, at which point Walter Houston does his jig. And then all the adventures ensue. And then they come down the mountain. It's just, it's like completely linear. They don't, Houston doesn't waste your time taking you places you don't need to go, which I think is a version of what you were saying about it's not, it's, it's not even just that there aren't flourishes, but that there aren't wasted subplots, really. You could almost argue that the Bruce Bennett thing is a subplot that isn't really necessary, except you need his uh, widowed wife in order for Tim Holt to have a reason at the end to go off and, you know, a place to place to go. Yeah. And he, and he does. He provides a little bit of help uh, yeah. for for the banditos to come and maybe even for the federales to come uh, on the heels of the banditos because he had come out from that same town. And so maybe, and again, this is perhaps headcanon, they followed him. That's why they're there. I don't know. It, it, it is, you know, as far as the economy is concerned, you know, there's only one set of banditos in all of Mexico. <laughs> they they, they show up on a train. Up those same guys. <laughs> they show up, you know, they, they try to rob the train. God knows how many miles away. Then they, then they show up on the mountain. It's, you know, that's... <laughs> Houston is like, look, the way I'm going to save save money is only have this one group of Mexican banditos. That's right. <laughs> That's right. But let's because they're let's, very costly. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, let's talk about those guys because, and and again, this is to Houston's great credit in terms of addressing the fact that we're in Mexico and we have Mexican people. And I read something. This may have been from the Wikipedia page for for so take it for what it's worth because I wasn't able to confirm it. But supposedly when they were initially trying to make the when Houston was originally trying to make a movie of the novel, he went afoul of the production code because quote it was too much against Mexicans. Yeah, I'm and not sure that was Houston's version. I think I think that might have been an earlier. You may be right. I, I my recollection is that Houston is the only person that was ever trying to make a movie of it. But uh, I, I guess the, the point is it might or might not be apocryphal, but it's interesting because by the time Houston gets to make it and just sort of does it on his own terms, you're not denigrating the Mexican people. And the people who have these sort of exaggerated Mexican a- accents include Alphonse Badea, the who's the main uh, bandito, the gold hat, which is his name in the movie. Yeah. Uh, that's... He he apparently was not a native English speaker, and so they they had a great deal of trouble. Uh, he, he's not putting that accent on. They had a great deal of trouble getting his his accent to be understandable in English, in English. Uh, and he is the one that, of course, has the uh, famous line about the badges. As they're uh, as they're going up the mountain, uh, again, economy of storytelling or, or or never wasting anything. They have this dust storm that comes through as they're, as they're going toward it, you know, they, they have, they go through the most amazing environment. Uh, you know, they go through jungles, they go, <laughs> they're on a mountain, they're in desert, but one of the areas is the dust storm. And of course, dust storm is foreshadowing for, right. for what happens at the end of the movie. We know, we know what that dust storm can do when we get to the end of the movie, because we saw it earlier in the movie. The landscapes, and especially once they start going up the mountain in order to find gold, and, and while they're dealing with the gold as they, as they I keep saying pan it, and that's not right. They're digging for it. They're mining it. Uh, but the, the desolation and the way that they do the sort of 
raw and empty landscape just just adds to the movie's uh, feeling and, and this sort of interiority of and of a sort of hopelessness is kind of the feeling I have. It's like this is the only reason anybody would be up here is because there's a gold mine that we're making. Right, right. And there's Gila monsters under the rocks. Yeah, which Cody kind of comes to later on is, right. you know, no, there's no hunting up here. That's not what this is for. This, this place well, is and, about and gold. Is, That's the only thing. This is a plot point I must address. As a, as a fan of all sorts of uh, feline beasts, large and small, there are no tigers in Mexico. <laughs> there never have been any tigers in Mexico. There are cougars. There are ocelots. And the point at which uh, uh, Dobbs hears what he thinks is a tiger growl, that is clearly a cougar growl. So they didn't even fake a tiger growl. I don't, you know, I, I was willing, I was willing to believe that Curtin and Dobbs would think it's a tiger, right? Yeah. But Howard, Howard should know better. Howard's not an idiot. Yeah, uh, agreed. Why does Howard think there's a tiger in the, <laughs> you, know, you know, and I, yeah, it's true. They, they did, they hacked their way through a jungle at one point. And I don't know what, whether there's, there really ought to be jungles in, in this part of Mexico. Not in that they part are. of Mexico. No, I don't think so either. But the I, coast maybe? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. It just, it seemed a little weird, but you know, apparently they bought the machetes and they right. figure, well, we've, we've got to use them or they had, they had the Tarzan uh, lot available to them. And then, well, Bruce let's, Bennett let's, is let's like, hey, I know about Tarzan things. Let's, let's, yeah, do it's like, but but yeah, so there's no tigers in Mexico, and uh, the uh, they say at one point that they're hunting tigers. So so tigers, I can I can buy that. Yeah, they think that they're tigers and that the tigers might eat them. But why would you be hunting tigers? Is are there pelts? I, I don't even know. I, I don't know. <laughs> the manly thing though, and John Houston, I'm sure was into hunting tigers. I'm, oh, I'm absolutely sure he was into hunting all sorts of. I know he hunted in Africa for, with the African queen, so I'm sure he was. He found things to kill in Mexico. I'm sure. So, uh, as as you can imagine, uh, if you haven't seen this movie, spoilers, it all goes for naught, and uh, Fred C. Dobbs does get murderous. The only criticism I have of the way the character of Dobbs develops is I almost think he gets comp- paranoid and crazy a little too early in the movie. I felt like they should have waited to have him do that, but then, because the point at which he is at his most insane and which, where he thinks he's killed Tim Holt's character, or he hopes he's killed Tim Holt's character, uh, by then he's been crazy for a really long time. And I almost wanted it to be a little less apparent, but that's a minor quibble. Yeah, I I think it's, I think they need him to go, maybe not as crazy as he did early on, but they they need him to be con- basically a bad guy almost immediately from the start. I mean, he's he's a grifter to start with. We know that, but um, you know, he needs to be the bad guy. He needs to be the guy that goes nuts. I think you're right. He, he they could have dialed it back a little bit in the in the early going. Uh, but we do have once again, you know, the, the foreshadowing. He's talking to himself as he's uh, strapping up a burrow to when he's going to be sent down to get supplies. And of course, later on, after he thinks he's he's killed uh, Tim Holt, he uh, he talks to himself. He he's just a, a monologue for the rest of his part of the movie uh, until he meets up with Goldhead at the very end. Right, and give him enormous credit for that long bit of solo acting. I mean, obviously he didn't do it in one take or anything, but still it was incredibly well done. And it's not just putting a beard on him and, you know, rough clothes and this sort of thing. It's, it's a, it's a great piece of acting. Um, so, and they, they, so there's the contrivance where they separate Howard off so that he, because he's the savior of this little Indian child, uh, in the, he doesn't do mouth to mouth resuscitation, but he, uh, he moves his arms around a lot. <laughs> there is there is a section of the movie that could have been cut a little bit. Yes, I mean, I he agree. is moving he is moving that kid's arms up and down and up and down to try to expel water or whatever right. for seemingly half an hour. Right. That's, and, the, and, that's and, the one slow part of the movie. And, and this will allow him to to reside in the lap of luxury, even without his gold at the end of the movie. So I guess it's worth it in that sense. Yes. And so all of our guys are separated. I, I enjoy that when Fred is all alone and he's coming down with all of the gold and all that, that his one of his major issues is how am I going to manage all of these damn burrows? He's got a lot of burrows. Mm hmm. 
they're they're packed with gold. And so even under the best of circumstances, even if there was enough water for him and for the animals, and if he wasn't going crazy, it would not have been an easy task. And oh, by the way, there's going to be a dust storm a little bit later. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there is. Uh, what was it? Who who was following him? Was it was it Holt and 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 uh, Houston that was following? when they see the dead burrow along oh, the way? Yeah, that's yeah. how they they right. know that they're they're on the right trail because right. there, there's a there's a, a burrow corpse along the way. Okay, well he must he must have gone this way. I guess so because he's probably the only one with burrows. And then they get back to town and, oh, the, the, the Federales have finally caught the banditos because the little kid has recognized the brand on the burrows. And so the banditos who have the burrows after they've killed for, oh, I skipped where we killed Humphrey Bogart. Sorry about that. I'm bad at plots. Well, uh, you know, I'm, th- I'm thinking we might want to back up to to uh, to where our, our favorite Bruce Bennett shows up. Oh, I, yeah, I, I guess because, you're right. All right. Let's talk. Because we, we do have to about. we do have to talk about that because he yes. uh, so uh, so uh, Tim Holt, Curtin goes into town to pick up some supplies and he meets an American in, in the town. I believe this is the same town that they, they bought the boroughs from in the first place. Um, and uh, through some of the most clumsily delivered dialogue in the world, we see that this uh, fellow Cody played by Bruce Bennett is wise to what goes on up in the mountain. And he knows that there's gold in them, their hills and uh, but Tim Holt's ki- Tim Holt kind of thinks he gives him the slip. But then when we cut away from the uh, from the town and, and Holt is back uh, with uh, with Howard and Dobbs. And by the way, I'm mixing up actors and character names. Sue me as we do. <laughs> he, he knows he knows that Cody is uh, is following him. And then Cody just shows up and we have dialogue. uh Everybody, you know, the, the our three main characters are trying to pretend that they're hunting, and then when he tells them, "Well, there's nothing, there's there's no game around here." Well, that's what we found out, so we're going to be moving on. And you know, uh, they all go to sl- they go to sleep, but they're going to they're going to watch him. And uh, the next scene is the next morning. The our our three heroes sort of vote two to one to kill Cody. Yeah, I like that Bruce Bennett gives them, that Cody gives them their choices. He says, you can kill me, you can let me go, or you can let me be your partner. And choice two doesn't make any sense because I'm going to rat you out. So it's choice one or three, and they go off together, and they decide they're going to kill him. And just at that point, uh, that's when Gold Hat and his uh, bandits come back. Right. And then we have the shootout. And Gold Hat and his uh, compadres pretend that they are the Federales, you know, the mounted police. <laughs> and that's as close as I'm going to get to the accent. Right. Um, and and so badges. That's that's badges. where we get the badges. So badges. The only thing about that scene that is, well, what's interesting to me about that is that earlier in the movie, I think it's Howard that says what these guys really want if they come upon you is your guns and your ammo. Yes. And so at the time that the banditos come along, they only see Humphrey Bogart. Let's assume that they know that there are three other guys. Well, there are a lot more than them. And our head bandito, Goldhat, is wearing bandoliers with just bullets and bullets and bullets. I can't imagine that even he thinks that the number of guns or amount of ammunition that Humphrey Bogart and his team have is even worth their while. I mean, it's 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 fun to see them menace them, but I guess I sort of wonder what do they expect to get? Because as we find out later, they're not really hip to the whole gold thing. No, they are not, and and it is. I mean, the the negotiation ostensibly is for Bogart's gun for his rifle. Uh, you know, that's what they're they're trying to get out. They're going to give him. They're going to give him this watch, uh, this nice gold watch that they that they found somehow found. Um, so, you know, I don't know. It's consistent with what with what uh, Howard said earlier on. And of course, at the end of the movie, when they take the burrows and the uh, and the, the, all the other supplies uh, and and dump the gold. Uh, spoiler. Um, they, they it kind of plays out how how they're around this area. 
and don't understand what what gold looks like when it's still sort of in sand form, I don't know, but they don't. Or that there are Americans who come for this purpose because they believe what Bogey and his team tell them that they're hunters. And so they throw the gold out because they think that it's weighing down hides that are in these saddlebags. And those saddlebags aren't all that big. If they had hides, they probably would need bigger bags. Well, <laughs> and if, they're, if they're in the area, don't they know there's no game there? You'd think so. Even Howard knows that. And and Cody, Cody knows that. Yeah, he says it. But, you know, but these are niggles. I mean, this sounds, these sounds like, these are the things that you you think about after you've seen the movie five or six exactly. times on the first viewing you'd be like oh this is just really great and you just you just on. yeah you just go right it, through it you, you are carried to along interrogate why the banditos were after bogey and what they might have been after until frankly this viewing <laughs> yes you, you're carried along by your suspension of disbelief and the acting and just and the plot and everything just moves you along beautifully yeah. And really, it still does. I just, you know, you just have time to think about these things now because you you know where the plot's going and you don't have, you're not, your head is not filled with, oh, I wonder what's going to happen next. You know what's going to happen next. You just enjoy seeing it. Precisely. And the question is, how crazy is Dobbs going to be? What is he willing to do? And is he going to get away with it? That's probably the suspense. And, you know, what damage are the bandits going to be able to do? And how much fun is it to watch Goldhat, who just creates this he does a thing that i love when villains do when they take their time they one of the weapons that a villain a good villain has when he's confronting somebody who's scared to death of him is relax calm and relaxation and just sort of talking slowly and letting the other person simmer in their own fear and he does a great job of doing that yeah and that that is definitely a, a time in the movie where houston takes his time and it is definitely to the to the movie's benefit. So sadly, that is when we must say goodbye to Cody because he gets killed in the gunfight, and uh, you know, much to the to the happiness of our our our, uh, our team because now they don't have to split four ways. Certainly, to, to the to the happiness of Dobbs. I mean, I th- I yes. think Howard. I, I don't, that's not. Yeah, right. That's fair. How, Howard and Curtin are affected by it, and especially yes. after they come to see Cody or see his body, and they start looking around to get any information about him, so they can alert his next of kin or what or whatever. Right. Uh, Tim Holt pulls out a letter from Cody's wife, and where she and that, which they read in full. Maybe a little bit too long, but anyway. Yeah. Uh, you know, she is she's pining for him and she, you know, he's had some he's had a string of bad luck, but she really hopes that this works for him. And even if it doesn't, they'll be OK. And there they are in Dallas and they have this uh, the, the land that they have. The or- things are, are now in bloom and the orchards are starting to now there, there's a plot point. The, the orchards are starting to bloom and, and the fruit are, are going to come. I, was it peaches? I don't remember whether it was peaches. Yeah, uh, peaches. I, I uh, as a resident of Texas, will tell you that the peaches are a good deal further south than Dallas. Than Dallas, <laughs> gets very cold in, Texas, in Dallas. They're in the Texas Hill Country. There are, in fact, quite a lot of peaches in the Hill Country, which is probably uh, between, which is between Dallas, uh, between Dallas, between Austin and San Antonio. So, uh, on the well, way to you know, Dallas, you'll see the peaches. If, if you have a jungle next to a mountain in Mexico, <laughs> I think you can have peaches in That's Dallas. Right. I meant to say this earlier, but the only thing that struck me as just sort of an incredibly weird note is that when uh, before they even go off on their adventures, when uh, Dobbs and uh, Curtin are sort of sitting together and dreaming about what they're going to do with their money, uh, uh, Curtin is like, you know, I want to buy a fruit orchard because I I grew up picking fruit as a kid and it was great because all families worked together picking fruit and it was happy and people sang songs at the end of the day. And I'm like... That is an interesting conception of the uh, migrant fruit picking lifestyle. I yeah, Cesar Chavez did not write exactly. this movie. <laughs> no, <laughs> but but that but we need to have that because that's why he needs that's a dream. why that's why Curtin is so affected by. I mean, apart from the fact that he's horny, he's yes. that's why he's so affected by by the wife's letters because oh, you know, there's there's an orchard there. There's an orchard near and, Dallas. And, and this and, and 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 Cody is sort of he's he's a kinsman of mine because right. he's an orchard guy. And gosh, and there's I'll, nothing I'll take nothing more outstanding than an orchard guy. <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> has dreamy remembrances of orchards. So, yeah, so that, I mean, it, it does, in the moment, before you get to the end of the movie, you're sort of like, I don't even know why we're doing this, because... You know, Cody is a is a character who who wasn't really there very long, and his only impact in the movie really is to give Tim Holt a place to go at the end of the movie and to bring some sort of heart to his character. And his, again, as I think we have agreed, like his character is a good guy, but this specific instance gives him a place to go instead of going, you know, I'll just go back to Tampico and bum around and hope I can pick up a few pesos. It's better to say. Why don't you go to Dallas? Howard says, I'll give you all my, I'll give you the money from the, the boroughs. Why don't you go to Dallas and look that lady up? And he's like, all right, sounds good to me. I'm sure, yeah. You know, I'll, I'll come in, tell her that her husband's dead. And, hey, I'm, I'm here to help you with your orchard, if you know what I mean. <laughs> what guy can't succeed with a line like that? So uh, our, our boys, uh, now they've, they've got all the gold, they've managed to, Get away from the bandits, but uh, uh, and and Howard has uh, saved this little kid's life, and so he's separated. And uh, Curtin and Dobbs are going down the mountain together. And well, Dobbs is really going crazy at this point. And and it is it is at night when uh, Dobbs really loses his mind. There's the scene where his face becomes gradually more obscured by fire, and he he really is. <laughs> that that's that's after he's killed Curtin. Oh, is it okay? All right. Yeah, because that's that that's then. the hellfire. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Yeah. I, I was, I got, I got my fire scenes mixed. I up. did not see that. I, this is the first time I, I really noticed that, and it's, and you know, you think about it, and after I saw it, I said, oh, yes, of course, because the fire, the campfire sort of blazes up in his eyes as his eyes start to go you right. know, crazy as as he's contemplating what he's done to Curtin. And it's occurred to me that it's quite likely that when I've seen this before, there are scenes that have been cut because at two hours and five minutes. That's an odd time to show a movie on television. So it's quite likely that they would have wanted to cut, you know, 20, 30 minutes out of it. And there's several scenes that I don't remember as well as I remember the rest of the movie. That's one of them. And some of, a couple of later scenes I feel the same way about. So it's quite possible yeah, that's, that it's been. Yeah, that's true. We, certainly when I first saw this, it would have been on WGN uh, here in Chicago. And there's no way they showed this uncut because um, right. it, would, it would have had to play for three hours. So, so uh, yeah, before before the hellfire, uh, Dobbs kills Curtin, or he thinks he does. And I, I do like the way they do it, because he kills him at night. He shoots him. He shoots him again. And he's like, all right, I killed him, and I'm going to go off and take all the goods with me. Ha, ha, ha. Gets up the next morning, saddles up, starts walking, and then he's having second thoughts. He's like, wait, is he really dead? Maybe I better go check. I just I just love the way they handle the uncertainty. As you mentioned before, he's talking to himself this whole time, which you have to do in order for the movie to work. But he's also just like physically like darting about and trying to figure out what to do and whether to go back. And he finally goes back and he doesn't find the body. And that's just when he loses his, his marbles. Yes. Yeah. But Bogart does a lot of really good physical acting in this movie where uh, the way he holds himself, not, you know, he's not jumping around and doing stunts, but the the way he holds himself and shows us that he's going nuts or that he, that he is the kind of person that he is through his posture and turn of the head and so forth. And there's something that I, again, I had never noticed before this most recent viewing Uh, he, when he is threatened, and wants to appear threatening, he stands with his elbows sticking out, his his hands sort of in front of his stomach with his fingers slightly curled, not into fists, just slightly curled. It's a very odd posture to take. And he does it two or three times in the movie where things are going bad for him and he wants to put on a show that he's a tough guy. And it's it really looks dumb but it, it's kind of menacing, but it's more menacing because it looks like he's crazy. Like, you know, he, right. why, why does this guy look this way? And it's an interesting choice. I, I assume that this is something that Bogart himself came up with, that it isn't John Huston telling him to do that because everything that I've read about John Huston is he didn't really care what his actors did so much. Right. You know, he was. <laughs> yeah. He, he was, he's not giving him detailed notes. One thing that I've always wondered, especially in the 40s where you have a lot of movies that 
where male actors are in suits. Like if it's a modern day movie, whatever the circumstance, the guy is wearing a suit and he's his coat's buttoned and his tie's tied. And I always wonder, and, and I think of Bogart in a suit. He's a gangster. He's, uh, you know, the Maltese Falcon. He's a private detective. And I always wonder when you put somebody both in a physically different environment and you clothe them differently. And in this case, Bogart was losing a lot of hair at this point. He's wearing a wig as well as he's got a beard. So I can imagine, which probably helped the character, because I can imagine him being sort of a little uncomfortable in his skin or a little, you know, discomposed. And if he's a smart actor, which I think he is, he found a way to use that. It makes sense because they, again, the stories that you want to take with a grain of salt, but the one that I believe is that, you know, Houston kept them out on location too long uh, and the actors were getting tired of it. Bogart had a yacht race he wanted to go to. And so Houston finally, like Bogart kept bugging him and bugging him. And finally Houston supposedly did something to basically shut him up and, and he shut him up. But yeah, it still went over time from the actor's point of view. Well, Houston's about two feet taller than Bogart. So probably, <laughs> That's true, too. <laughs> he could have laid him out uh, <laughs> without question. And by the way, there's nothing better for your image of, of hum- Humphrey Bogart is to hear that he's he's very concerned about being able to go on his yacht. <laughs> <laughs> right. Go participate in a yacht race. It's true. That, well, that's that's what you want. That's Cary Grant. That's, that's, <laughs> not, that's not Bogart. Cary Grant didn't have a yacht, but Bogart did. Which is <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah. Now he's now things are really unraveling, and he's he's by himself, and he's scared to death, and his his now he's got to get himself down the hill because he's by himself, and he we're we're back to what I was talking about before, which is. How is he going to manage all those burrows and be crazy and not have water to drink at the same time? Yep. And he, and he dumps one burrow um, and then and gets along. And then, and then he, he finally, he gets to like the ruins on the outside uh, outskirts of the town where they had bought the burrows. And there is a little stream or, or a ditch or something by it where there's water. And he runs down and goes down the ditch, dunks his head into the water. The burrow comes up next to him and starts drinking next to him as kind of a camaraderie thing because they've been through a lot, Bogart and the burrow. And they're they're drinking next to one another. And one of the few things, there, there are very few um, shots in this movie where, Bo, where uh, John Huston is sort of telling you that he's the director of the movie. And this is one of them as Bogart is, is there looking in the stream and the stream, or it's not a stream because it's, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty it's a ditch basically. It's a ditch. Yeah. And so it's pretty still and he's pulling his head up. He's had his drink. He's sort of wiping the dust off of his face and his hair. And we're looking down on him and down on the ditch and the water. And we see the reflection of gold hat appear behind Bogart's reflection. Yeah. That is very directory. And it's it's very nice. nice. It's, it's nice. Great. Ah, Gold Hat. Our nemesis returns, always just at the right time. Still and, got uh, the hole in his hat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe a couple more from when Bogart shot him through the hat. The, the great thing about the hat is not only that it's gold, but it is, I mean, it's it's more like a sombrero than a cowboy hat. It's a big, big hat, which you need for the sunny environment they're in. I mean, it, it's a perfect hat. Like, you know, Bogart... He didn't have a big hat like that. <laughs> no, no. And he he doesn't get around, you know. Nope. Uh, you know, Gold Hat doesn't go crazy walking around through the through the mountains. Right. No, he's fine. And and Gold Hat pretty quickly gets the measure of where Dobbs is at this point. He's like, you 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 don't have anything, you know. We're going to take your. St-. And Dobbs offers him a job as a mule driver, which just not only is funny to Gold Hat, but offends him. Like, because he's a, which, and I, I, I'm thinking to myself, what if Goldhead said, sure, I don't think that's going to work out for him either. Goldhead could have said, sure, I'll be happy to be your mule driver. And then he just takes the burrows and Bogart's like, wait, wait, wait come back with my burrows. It would have just been biting for time or something. I, exactly. I, yeah. It's, it, it, yeah. It, it would, have, and, would have worked for Goldhead either way. So clearly he's got the upper hand and then the Bogart's last opportunity, he's got a pistol. And he tries to pull the trigger, and there's no bullets. And it's over at that point. Bogart is toast. 
and the banditos laugh at him and uh gold hat gets out his, is that that's probably not a machete but anyway whatever he gets out the big knife like thing and whacks his head off which we right. don't see of which course they don't see apparently they uh, there there's some indication that they filmed a more close representation to his actually getting decapitated because there are ripples in the water that would have, where the head would have been had they shown the head and that was a production code thing. I was like, no, we can't show that. Right. Uh, and Bogart, I think, wanted them to. He's like, yeah, if my head gets cut off, I'd like to show. And just and it's not. It wasn't that you were going to see it being done. It was just that you're going to see the head rolling off into the rolling. Water. Yeah, exactly. The model of the head going down. You know, when he kills Curtin, it's another. I don't know whether that was a production code thing or not, but it's it's actually pretty well done. They go out of out of they go off stage right i mean it's 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 a very theatrical kind of thing they walk off stage you hear the shot off stage and then bogart comes back on stage essentially coming around a tree right and you know that the deed is done i think you're right i think that works like sometimes that seems like it's production code specific but other times that's just more effective filmmaking yeah i think i i don't know whether it was deliberate but if it if it if it was deliberate, it was a good choice. And if it was because of the code, the code helped him out. So our banditos now have the burrows. They have access to the bags with the gold in it, but they don't know that the bags are filled with gold. They think they're hides that have sand in them. And so they uh, are disappointed when there's nothing in them. And they take the burrows into town and the little kid recognizes that the burrows belong to Curtin and Dobbs and Howard. And he rats out the banditos and the banditos get shot. Which <laughs> it does it seem like there there's not much uh, justice in terms of getting uh, uh, you know the banditos to stop what they're doing, but all of a sudden at some point they get to where they can do it very quickly. We're just let's going to line them up and we're going to kill them. Yeah, the the villagers you know put put the the banditos in jail and then you know fade out, fade in. The federales show up and we've already seen the federales execute people. Uh, in the in the past, and in fact, Cody had already told us that what they do is they make they make the banditos they make the criminals dig their own grave and then they shoot them and they drop into the grave and we see that scene almost it's slightly off off camera where that happens. We do see uh, Gold Hat and his his compadres digging their own graves. Then we see them get lined up just a little bit off hand camera. The best part, of course, is a, a gust of wind blows, uh, comes up, blows Gold Hat's hat off, yep. and he said, oh, whoa, whoa, <laughs> don't shoot me yet. I'm going to go with my hat on. So he goes to <laughs> retrieve his hat, goes back to stand next to the grave, then ba-bang, they drop in, everything's everything's that's done. And nice I think flourish. I love that. Yeah, and I think that's about at the time that uh, Howard and Curtin show up in town because they they hear the gunshots and and Howard says, "Up, oh, there was an execution." Right, and they find out that Dobbs is dead. They find out that the, the burrows have been rounded up. But uh, oh, where's the stuff that was on the burrows back? Well, it's at the ruins outside of town. And then just as they're going to the ruins outside of town, the dust storm returns, and it's quite the dust storm. And so the bags of gold have been broken in, open so that the bandits can find the hides that aren't in there. Uh, and so the gold all scatters to the wind, and Howard begins to cackle. And shortly thereafter, Curtin begins to laugh as well, because this movie is full of irony. <laughs> yes, right. The gold has gone back to where we found it. Exactly. And uh, that's pretty much the end. Uh, they, they, well, they, uh, Howard says, you know what? I can go back to the, the Indians who love me and who will treat me like a king and who will give me as much food as I want and uh, all the things that make me happy. So I, I got a pretty good life. So why don't you take the burrows and go uh, sell them and take the money and go to Dallas and find a lady with peaches? And yes. <laughs> That's that's right. If you that know what like I mean. That seems like a good deal to him. Yeah. Oh, well, I'll go. I'll go do that. This is this is like like the wrap up of Animal House. You know, when they're doing the credits scene, what everybody turned into at the at the end. Oh, that's yeah, what, yeah, yeah. You know, we, uh, <laughs> so we know Howard's going to go back, and he's going to be you know waited on in his hammock by the by the beautiful young ladies, and there and and um, and then Holt is going to go off to Dallas and and meet Helen. I believe her name was the Peach Lady. See, well, and everything and everything's great. 
See, Walter Houston, you can go back to being a leading man. You don't need to have your false teeth in. You can just go, and those those Indian maidens will treat you like a leading man. Exactly. <laughs> and John Houston will go on to boss Humphrey Bogart around in other movies. They'll next time we see him. Well, actually, it's Key Largo next, and then later on uh, they'll be in a boat in Africa. So. Yes. The end. Dr. Drang, thank you so much for joining me. It was a delight to talk about to Treasure of the Sea Armandre with you. Well, thank you. I, I, I love this movie. I have loved it for many years. It's not quite the Maltese Falcon, in, in my opinion, but it, it, it's, it's pretty darn good. Uh, and by the way, Walter Houston, also in the Maltese Falcon, yes. uh, uh, you know, bird, funk. Uh, <laughs> But but thank you for, for, for doing this show because I love this movie and all the little nits that we pick don't mean a thing. Uh, it, it is a wonderful movie. You really, you will, you will enjoy it. It's, it's, it's so fun to watch this. Absolutely. It holds up for people who aren't sure whether they like, I don't usually apologize for classic movies, but there are people I know who don't like the pacing or the style of classic films, but this, this works as a, an adventure movie and certainly the plot and the, the meanings behind it all work. And uh, people have heard of John Houston, so give it a chance. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and if you've been watching movies from the MCU, two hours is going to go like that, you know? <laughs> there you go. The Treasure of the Sierra Madre is available on Blu-ray from the Warner Archive Collection. It's a nice Blu-ray. I believe there's commentary. I can't remember who did it. It's also pretty widely available streaming, and I'll have links to all of that in the show notes. If you want to keep track of this show, you can go to theincomparable.com slash LTS. That's also where you can subscribe and read show notes and click on all the links to the past movies that we've talked about before, should you wish to watch them in streaming or on disc formats. You can also follow the show at Lion Tower Shield over on Twitter because S's cost extra. Or you can follow me personally at Shelley, S-H-E-L-L-Y, also on Twitter. We'll be back in two weeks to talk about George Cukor's 1939 film, The Women. Bye now.